0: Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we speak to Jeffrey Montez de Oca, an associate professor of sociology and the founding director of the Center for the Critical Study of Sport at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Jeffrey shares tales from his circuitous path to Marxism and reflects on how he came to realize that Karl Marx provides the tools necessary to help us understand the alienation and inequalities brought about by capitalism. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: So we're here today to talk about Karl Marx. Now, Marx is arguably the social theorist with the greatest name recognition, and that's both good and bad right? when we think about Marx. But I'm wondering if you could just get us going by giving us a short introduction of who Marx was or or what he's known for
1: in your mind. Sure. Yeah, so Karl Marx is a radical thinker and he engaged in a in a sustained critique of capitalism. And I think that's what's most useful for us as sociologists. As we're trying to understand how society works, one of the key aspects of the world we live in is the way in which we re- reproduce ourselves. We keep ourselves alive. Keep ourselves alive, and that's through our economic activity. And so, capitalism, as the dominant economic system in the world that we live in, is this incredibly powerful force that creates a context where people live out their lives, it creates possibilities for certain sorts of things that we do, certain identities that we hold, and it also puts tremendous constraint upon those things. It's also a system of inequality. Capitalism presupposes inequality and it reproduces inequalities and creates new inequalities, uh, which I think is a central part of what Marx is trying to, trying to explain. So when you read Capital, um, what he's doing is he's walking you through how capitalism works, how capitalism operates, and the ways in which it oppresses people, typically in ways that we don't even recognize. So I think it's just a key set of ideas and tools for understanding the world that we live in, but even more importantly, for thinking about how we participate in the creation of this world, and that opens up the potential to change the world we live in. So
0: the next question might be a little bit difficult because of how foundational Marx is, but do you get a sense of how widely read he is across the larger discipline of sociology, and then also how influential he is in your uh, specific subfield, so I
1: I would say the studies of culture and sport? Sure. Well, so in sociology, he's clearly, he's like, everybody's read Marx. I mean, to be a sociologist, uh, you have to take, you know, sociological theory in most grad, most sociology graduate, I mean, as undergraduate programs, we usually require a semester of theory, and Marx is going to be considered part of the canon, and a central member of the canon, the big three being Marx, Durkheim, and Weber. And so you will get exposed to, if not Marx himself as an undergrad, Marxism through secondary sources explaining Marx. But in the graduate program, you're always going to read um some amount of Marx, uh, original Marx. And so typically, uh, I think people will, will have to read some of the early, more philosophical Hegelian Marx, and some of the later, more scientific Marx. So sociologists are familiar with Marx. The thing that's interesting there is we most sociologists engage Marx in their theory class, which is a canonical course. It's about uh, professionalization and being able to stamp a person as a sociologist. So Marx is one among many different people who help us to better understand society. That said, sociology generally doesn't produce a lot of Marxists. People who take Marx, read Marx, and use Marx to as the central uh, set of ideas to understand the world that we live in. And as Marx always says, it's not enough to explain the world. The, the goal of theory should be to transform the world. So we tend to take Marx and in, in sociology in a very liberal way. We adopt him for liberal purposes, you know, generally understanding the world and trying to reform the world that we live in, but not radically transform the world. I, I would say in, in sports sociology, the subfield I'm in, or sort of a cultural studies, I'm kind of a cultural studies scholar, we read a lot of Marx, and we read a lot of Marxists. But we gen- we tend to read cultural Marxists, So people who are understanding issues around the production of culture, uh, the production of ideology, the way in which identities form, we we tend not to read a lot of the uh, Marx for pol- of political economy. Um, so we take aspects of Marx.
0: So, would you argue that within the sociology of sport, there should be more focus on capitalism or the political economy or material relations?
1: Well, I, well, I, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So, <laughs> an easy, easy answer then. <laughs> absolutely, I think we should. Um, because the world that we live in is structured, you know, by capitalism. That uh, if we, you know, when we look at sport, the sport that most of us consume is set up in order to generate capital, capital accumulation. Many of the problems that we see in sport, that as sports sociologists we want to identify and hopefully rectify are driven by issues of capital accumulation. Sport, as something that I've written about, sport within PE, comes out of an imperialist tradition. And this is one of the really important things we learn from Marxism, is that we can't separate imperialism from capitalism. They're really one and the same thing. And so the imperial tradition that sport has participated in is adopted in our schools. And it's socializing us to be wage laborers, to be workers. Uh, It socializes us to be soldiers, or if we're not soldiers, which of course most people in the United States aren't going to go into the military, but to accept the logic of militarism. And so I, I think it's crucial that we study the operation of political economy at the same time, we're looking at the formation of different kinds of identities because the formation of identities these these different identities that we tend to be really interested in are not separate from the 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 economic context in which our identities form.
0: Let's take a little bit of a step back and think about your first encounters with Marx. So I'm wondering when you became aware of his ideas, whether it was reading him directly or just these these this thing drifting out there in
1: the world. Sure. This is sort of a, you know, it's kind of a long story in a way, in a long process, because I certainly wasn't born a Marxist. But uh, I, I was born during the Cold War. I was born in the late 1960s, and I grew up in the later years of the Cold War. And in particular, in 1980, when Ronald Reagan uh, was elected president, and and in his early years, it was, you know, um, the conflict with the Soviet Union really came to a head. He had very famous statements like "Better dead than red," and and I, and I was like fascinated because. Here is this horrible boogeyman, Karl Marx, that caused the deaths of millions of people, caused suffering all over the world, and led to all these horrible, horrible dictatorships. So I got really like fascinated by, by this guy because he was really bad. And, and I was a bad student. I mean, I was at best a C student in high school. And so... I wanted to read something really transgressive. I wanted to read something really bad. So I picked up the the Communist Manifesto. And as, you know, a 16-year-old high school student in 1984, without any exposure to any of this kind of material, I really didn't get it. Um, I found it fascinating, and I felt really cool for having read it. And then... um, I went off and I worked. I, I swore when I was in high school, I would never go to college. And um, and so I got a job as a cook. I, I worked for many years as a cook, punching a clock, getting burned and cutting myself and all that stuff and making really low wages. And, and, and finally, I was like, this is not for me. As they say, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. So so I got out of the kitchen and, and then I tried to get a, uh, a job that would actually be more satisfying, that would pay better. And with a high school level education and years of experience cooking, and you know, I was a decent cook, uh, you know, that I wasn't going to get a job that I wanted to get. You know, I didn't want to go into sales. I didn't want to break my back doing construction work um, out in the cold and the hot and all that sort of stuff. And so I realized I had to go to university and the time that I went to university and got the got the BA was the mid 1990s. And postmodernism was all the rage, and and I should just say a weird thing happened when I was in college. I found I was actually really good at academics, and I was and and I was suddenly an A student, and I got really invested and realized I wanted to be a university professor, because it was very trans. The experience was very transformational for me and liberating after punching a clock for so many years. So, the big debate at this time in the nineteen nineties, the idea of postmodernism was raging.
0: Who were the people you would have been reading then?
1: Michel Foucault, especially Derrida, Lyotard, and then just a lot of different people that were taking taking them up. The study of popular culture, a kind a version of cultural studies really influenced by these postmodernists or post-structuralist because I was actually taking a lot of film classes. So, so there was this, basically what was presented to me was this kind of debate or two positions. There were the young, hip postmodernists who were focused on discourse, on identities, on race in these more interesting ways. And then there was the old school modernists, people that were reading Marx, people that were reading Weber, the, you know, the, the people we teach in, in a lot of our classical uh, sociological theory classes. and. And they just seemed really boring, but they were concerned with the real issues of material and institutional power, not sort of identities and discourse floating around. And and, and so what did I want to do? Well, I wanted to be young and hip because I was young and and would have liked to have thought of myself as somewhat hip. And and this sort of continued going into grad school because I went into a film program, uh, Cinema Studies at NYU. And... This research was really critical of modernists, of in particular Marxism, the grand theories of Marx. So I read about Marxism, but I never actually read any Marx Marx or actual Marxists until I got into the PhD program at USC, and uh, it was a sociology uh, program. And in my first semester, I took my very first sociology class, which was classical theory. I also had to take social statistics, Uh, but that's a story for a different day. And one of the first things we read was Marx, and I found it incredibly difficult.
0: Do you remember what reading or what section of Marx that you had to start with?
1: So the very first thing we read was uh, the critique of Hegel's philosophy of rights. I had never heard of Hegel before. I didn't know who that dude was. It was so confusing. And then we read the estranged labor chapter out of the economic and philosophical manuscripts. What else did we read? I forget. We probably read some of the German ideology. So... It was very difficult to read, but I found it fascinating. And one of the things that I I discovered actually reading Marx, and then later on we read Capital and the Communist Manifesto, one of the things that I discovered in reading Marx is he provides these really powerful tools for understanding my own experience as a worker, for the frustrations I felt growing up as a child, for the frustrations I felt as a young adult in a dead-end job, when I looked around at the world around me to understand the inequalities that existed, the shit that my father had to experience, all of these sort of things, they started to make sense in a way that they hadn't, hadn't before. And I realized that shutting off a whole body of knowledge without actually reading it was a huge mistake. Because I had an understanding of Marx, but it was a very partial understanding of Marx. I think many of those critiques were valuable and useful, but they were really partial. And a lot of times, they they, they actually were misunderstand. I would say they were actual misunderstandings of Marx because they were understandings of particular marxists and not of Marx not of Marx's work itself and the various different traditions coming out of Marx and then later on I took actually a, a critical geography class that you know critical geography being very thoroughly marxist in its orientation and one of the things I realized in taking that class is that marxism starts from actual living people and actual living people's experience of the world. And if you actually care about people, then that's the way to go. Starting not with i systems of ideas, not with starting with abstractions, but actual people and constantly returning to people, how does the how do these different institutions, how do these different systems actually impact upon people. And so if that's where your your moral compass is, then I don't see how you can not embrace Marx. And then the other thing that I realized while I was in grad school and actually reading Marx and reading in the Marxist tradition is, of all of the different theoretical traditions that get embraced, the classical traditions in sociology, the only one willing to imagine a world outside of capitalism is the Marxist tradition. Because, you know, from the dialectic of formation, deformation, reformation, we understand it is human labor that has produced the world we live in, including capitalism. And if it's some if it's a human product, something that we've created, we can uncreate it and recreate it and hopefully create it in an in in a, in a better form, as the more contemporary expression would say, another world is possible. And I find it very hard to imagine another world without having a thorough critique of capitalism and of liberalism.
0: So this is going to be a difficult one because Marx provided so many different tools and powerful ways of understanding the world, and clearly they connected with you on a number of different levels. But I'm wondering, is there one particular concept that you would say had a dramatic
1: influence on you? Sure. I think the most important thing to take away from Marx is... So, so so, we're born into a capitalist society and particularly now in a later stage of capitalism in a country like the United States or if you're in Canada or if you're in Europe or if you're in any other very affluent country, there's a tremendous amount of wealth built up around you that you experience. You experience tremendous levels of privilege. It's very easy to say capitalism provided these things to me and say, you know, other systems were very exploitive. One of the things that Marx is able to show us in capital is the way in which capitalism is profoundly exploitive, but hides the experience of exploitation. So when we think about how is capitalists able to generate surplus labor, right? There's a certain amount of time during the day when you need to work to generate the value of your own wages, right? So we're all paid, we're all commodities. We, you know when when the, when labor is separated from the means of production, it's separated from its own means of subsistence. and therefore we have no choice but to sell our own labor power on the free market at the going wage. And so the wage is what allows us to pay our rent, pay for our food, pay for our clothing, pay for any kind of entertainment and leisure that we might want to enjoy. It allows us to reproduce ourselves as workers and go back to work the next day. Now nobody is going to go into business in a capitalist society if they can't make money. And so um, capitalists need to be able to make money off of your labor. So they need to generate more value than your wage. So you have to work for a certain amount of time every single day to generate the value that's equal to your own wages. And the thing is, after you've generated that value, you keep on working. And that becomes surplus labor time, right? Where you're not working for yourself, you're working for your boss. Essentially, what you're doing by going to work is paying your boss for the right for you to be able to keep on living, because otherwise you're not gonna get a wage. And the thing is, is there's that necessary labor time, the time that you have to work in order to generate the value equal to your own wage, and the surplus labor time, where you're generating value above and beyond the cost of reproducing yourself In our day, we don't experience a separation, right? The separation is heuristic. It's simply a way of understanding the workday. So you open yourself up to exploitation and you don't experience it it as exploitation because you can never say, when are you working for yourself and when are you working for your boss? This is very different than, say, like in the Middle Ages, Marx says, under feudalism, right? When you go into the commons and you're working for yourself to produce the goods necessary for your own subsistence, but then you have to go, in order to have the right to live on the, on your, the Lord's land, you have to go and spend some time working the Lord's land. You know exactly when you're working for the Lord. You know exactly when you're being exploited. In a capitalist society, you don't know when you're being exploited, because there are there aren't these sort of clear separations, but you know you're getting a wage. You know if you keep on working, you'll get a raise that probably won't keep up with the with inflation. And uh, and you know you're able to like do these things that are very very enjoyable, right? The things that you're able to pr- to purchase in consumer in uh, cultural capitalism. So it's really easy not to see the exploitation that structures your everyday life, that produces the world that you live in. And so for me, that's just this incredibly powerful insight that Marxism allows us to see. Earlier, you
0: mentioned that a significant portion of your research is oriented around studying culture, and in particular, studying sport. So I'm wondering how these concepts influenced you as you chose what you were going to study or or how you studied it
1: so that's a great question if you look at the very early research i did in particular my first book discipline and indulgence it's very Foucauldian, governmentality yeah and you can see that even in the title it's kind of a, a hint at where you're going with that right ex- exactly right and that's like that's like my metaphor for culture in the united states right on the one hand we're highly disciplined we work incredibly long hours we're ex- we're very productive but at the same time, we have all this consumerism in which indul our indulgent that indulges us, right? And we have all these indulgences. So there's a this like so we're both like highly disciplined and we're we're highly self-indulgent at the same time. Yeah, so that's that's that. That's sort of the meaning of the, the title and certainly references discipline and punish. But I'm trying to understand in that book how college football served as a technology of citizenship during the cold war as a way in which workers and in particular white european men or Euro- european of Euro- white men white men of european descent especially ethnic europeans get integrated into the political economy of the cold war as both workers and warriors And so I really needed to understand the political economy of the Cold War in order to understand how these different identities were being formed within and through college football. And not just the playing of it, but the going to the games, watching, you know, watching it on television, reading about it in newspapers and magazines and and all of those sorts of things. So that led me down further down this path towards Thinking more and more and more about how the operation of capital works in people's everyday lives, beyond simply the unfolding of different rationalities in different institutional settings. And so, uh, so then later, I I do work on uh, like football films. I wrote about, for instance, The Blind Side and how political economy is operating in uh, the NFL, and that sort of led me to studying NFL marketing. And that's been a major area of research for me uh, for the last couple of years is looking at NFL marketing. Well, marketing is all about creating an image of a desirable world, a desirable lifestyle, desirable identities. In order to generate capital accumulation, and so then I've really sort of you know I, I still like hang on to the Foucault and the governmentality. I find those very useful ideas, but uh, much more I've embraced a lot of the, the cultural Marxism. You know the idea of spectacle. There's no way to understand marketing I think without without a theory of of commodity spectacle. So looking at the re- the logic that the logic of marketers as they do the kind of work they do in order to get people to purchase these particular commodities. And there's a lot of cultural work there. There's a lot of ethical and moral work going on there because what lifestyle marketing is trying to do is create an alignment between people's values, beliefs, and desires and specific commodities so that they can make those commodities a part of their everyday life as they're creating their, their, their own identities.
0: I'm always fascinated by how people understand the relationship between their research and theory. And so what I mean by this is, do you consider yourself doing research that calls into question Marx's ideas or fundamental concepts, or is it rather about taking those ideas and seeing how they play out in this contemporary moment?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So going back to what I said before about, you know, Becoming very anti-Marx without ever reading Marx. One of the things that, and and it's sort of funny, you know, if I call myself a Marxist, I don't really like polemics. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being polemical. I, You know, there's something about that that just doesn't sit right with me. I don't see why we need to tear somebody down to build something up. So, if I really have an issue with uh, a particular theorist, I tend not to use them and engage with them very much. And I have moments. There are people I have critiqued, but uh, but generally, that's that's not my goal. I would rather figure out. Useful ways of using particular ideas, and if there's if there's stuff within Marx, is sort of his some of his ontological ideas about class and how knowledge is produced, right? Not this is like correspondence between the, our material practices and the ideas in our head that has really been called into question. I just don't use it, so I much more see myself as trying to extend rather than to to, to criticize.
0: In your own work, are there other theorists that you find particularly useful in, in placing in conversation with Marx? And I know you've mentioned Foucault and some of the postmodern thinkers. Sure. Are there any other people that really come to mind as, as working well in the areas that you study?
1: Well, one person I would say who's been really useful for me because she taught that critical geography class is Laura Polito, who I think is just a fantastic scholar and, oh, what's his name that wrote Black Marxism? Robinson.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Cedric, right?
1: Yeah fantastic stuff you know and and, and so the, the basic idea that he's that he's arguing is that because capitalism has its roots in feudalism feudal aspects have carried forward into the present and in particular right so there wasn't this sort of radical rupture between feudalism with the emergence of capitalism and so the relations of domination that existed in feudalism extend into the present except under new conditions new social and economic conditions and so like one of the things he brings up is what's the root word of slave It's Slav right as in Slavic because early slaves were in, in the in the middle in feudalism uh, tended to come from Eastern Europe and so the changing the bodies, of who would be the slave was not a very difficult thing for the for the sort of the early or the pre-bourgeoisie to do during the mercantile age when imperialism was blossoming and the slave trade was created. And so Notions of race that have carried forward into the present are structuring of capitalism. So capitalism itself is structured by racism, and therefore racism is inseparable from capitalism. Well, this has been really useful as I think about the NFL players' protests that you know the 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 black players' protests in the NFL around the uh, the anthem and the flag. It's not really about the anthem and flag, of course, but really about state violence in communities of color. And so how does this moment, this ritual of nationalism, link up with state violence through the racial state? And so ideas of racial capitalism have been super useful for that. And thinking about patriotism, because one of the debates in around the, the players' protest is, is it patriotic or is it not patriotic? One of the arguments say, oh, Colin Kaepernick and these other players, they're treasonists, because they're not patriotic, right? They're not respecting the flag, the military, and all, and the nation. And then there's a response that says, well, wait a second, no, protest is patriotic. It's a very liberal response that the soldiers went off, they fight and die, they make all these sacrifices so that we can have the right to protest. And if we don't protest, then that's disrespectful to the, uh, to the sacrifices of the soldiers. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is wild because as I see it, offering fealty to not just the state, but the racial state, right? A state that produces racial categories and reproduces inequalities it presupposes that the racial state can be used in colorblind ways for the purpose of, of, uh, uh, of racial improvements and I find that very very improbable and so what the discourse of patriotism does is limit the radical potential that activists have if they want to transform the state because if you reject patriotism itself whether from a conservative or liberal perspective then you are seen as as in fundamentally deviant and outside of acceptable behavior. And this is one of the things that a co-writer and I found when doing interviews with people. There are people who say the protests are totally unacceptable. There are people who say the protests are acceptable so long as they stay within the bounds of liberal discourse, of civility, that if they push their challenge too hard, then they become unacceptable. But what that really does is that, in a very clever way, creates insulation around white supremacy. And so, so I think that the the dialectical approach that Marx has, and to be a Marxist, you have to t- you have to look at social phenomenon, the world that we live in through it dialectically, that di- the dialectical approach that we get from Robinson and Marx is really useful for understanding contemporary power dynamics.
0: Now you've already done a bit of this as you've reflected back on those different experiences you've had with Marx and his ideas, whether it's you know carrying his book around as a symbol, to uh, not really reading, reading his ideas, but instead reading critiques of Marx, and then eventually really engaging with the work and letting it influence what, your own research. Um, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering as we move towards the final question, if you could provide a bit more reflection on how your relationship to Marx and his ideas has changed
1: over time. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the more important ways in which my relationship has changed is one, I've read much more now, uh, much more of Marx now than than then. And I've read a lot more Marxists, broadly taught classes. Last semester, I taught a class called Marxism, Imperialism, Racism that was using uh, Marxist critiques of imperialism to understand contemporary manifestations of racism is I use Marx in much less of a liberal way now than I did in the past. And I think there's a way in which Marx... Gramsci, other important Marxist thinkers get uh, tamed and used in these much more sort of liberal ways. And so, um, you know, so like, you know, R.W. Connell, the idea of hegemonic masculinity, right, Gramsci's notion of hegemony is central to that, but there's not really much analysis of capital going on there. And so I think it's really important that we maintain a a analysis of capital because it's such a powerful structuring force in the world that we live in today. And so many of the things that people on the left want to see changed really can't be addressed unless we address issues of capital at the same time we're understanding how different identities form in, through, and around in relationship to these larger structures of oppression.
0: All right final question and this is another one that you've been you've been doing all along but i'm wondering if you could bring it all together and tell us why we should read marx so thinking about if you you know your experience teaching your experience you know research what do you tell the undergraduate or the graduate or or someone outside of academia why they should take on the task of reading this this difficult you know not that accessible text and 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 you know we could even think about the communist manifesto which is supposed to be that's supposed to be the easy one, right? <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's not that easy. So no, it's
1: not easy at all. <laughs> so why do we why do we take on this struggle? Uh, you know, when I talk to students in particular, one of the things I want to emphasize is it is very, very difficult to understand the world you live in and your own reality unless you engage with Marx. And it's it's amazing whether I you know when I taught at Cal State Long Beach when I was in grad school and we had lots of working class students of color in the in our classrooms there or here at University of Colorado Colorado Springs where I now teach uh, where we also have a lot of working class students and we have a lot of Colorado Springs is a military town we get lots of veterans and people who have fought in the global war on terror or at least were participants in it when we start reading marks and we start breaking it down in straightforward simple language light bulbs go on above these students their eyes light up you know i don't know how many of my my in particular my students of color who go oh man that explains why my father had this experience that explains why my mother has this experience with the veterans they're like that explains why I was in Afghanistan, why I was humping up those big-ass hills with packs on my back and, uh, and just making uh, villagers' life hell. It allows people to understand the world they live in in a way that otherwise can be very, very difficult to understand. Because the fact of the matter is, if capitalism could go away easily— it would have been gone a long time ago because of the damage it's done to the world that we live in. It won't go away easily. It takes a lot to understand how capitalism actually works and how capitalism actually exploits people. What, one of the things that I, you know, what I get from, from Marx and Marxism is that fundamentally, what is Marx saying? Marx is saying that capitalism is not sustainable. Maybe there's gonna be a kind of grand, glorious, violent revolution that's gonna resolve the contradictions in capitalism. It probably won't be like that, at least not exactly, but capitalism is not gonna last forever. And we could think about this in very, very simple terms. So capitalism is predicated on constant market growth. Anytime you turn on the television, open the newspaper, whatever, is the economy growing is the economy growing fast enough is the are we in recession and so in 1850 and, and the ideal amount of growth is 3% growth in 1850 3% growth of the capitalist economy was not a very significant amount of growth because the market was really really small in 1900 3% growth of a now much bigger market is a bit, but it's totally doable. In 1950, 3% annual growth is a really significant amount of growth. In 2000, it's an extraordinary amount. The problem is this. Capitalism needs infinite growth, but exists within a finite world. Sooner or later, the growth is not going to be able to be maintained. And this, I think, is the key contradiction of the world we live in right now. If you want to to see a green economy, if you want to see a sustainable world, a world that can exist for our great-great-great-grandchildren, capitalism isn't a possibility. Green capitalism is a lie. There is no sustainable capitalism because capitalism has to have infinite growth within a finite world and, and 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 when students can get their head around that then they're like oh man this stuff is really powerful this is really useful
0: All right, that's a that's a perfect inspiring statement to end on so thank you again for joining us that was a great conversation thanks a lot kyle
1: i appreciate you having me
0: on appreciation goes to jeffrey gilbert for providing our theme song undergraduate sociologists Alicia Rios and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.